Welcome to the C3 Church podcast. Here at church, we are passionate about people and helping them in their walk with God. We hope this Sunday message speaks to you today. so much for that welcome. What a joy to be with you this morning and to have the opportunity to look at God's Word at this particular passage from the book of Romans. We're going to be looking from chapter 6 verse 1 through to chapter 7 verse 25 and thinking about the theme of the ridge of freedom, the ridge of freedom. Now I don't know how um, you first came to faith but I wasn't born into a family where either of my parents were Christians. In fact, my dad had um, been born in Germany um, during the Second World War. And after the war, where my grandparents were living, um, was under Soviet occupation. And my grandfather um, realized that the people in the industry he was working in were being moved to Siberia and he thought, I don't want to live in Siberia. And so he made plans to escape. And this was um, a very kind of stressful and difficult context to be in. You can imagine after everything that had happened in the war, all the loss, all the death, and now coping with living under occupation. Anyway, it, 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 it worked out that um, a small plane was sent landed on an airstrip and one day my dad, his sister and my grandparents left the house where they lived, they left everything they owned and everyone they knew, walked out as if they were just going for a family kind of walk and picnic, got onto that plane and in 1948 landed at RAF Northholt in only what they were standing up in. I now live about 20 minutes from that airport and I often pass it and imagine the trauma. Now, uh, my grandfather was an atheist. He'd been at university in the 1920s. He'd heard of this man, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a brilliant pastor and theologian. He'd even gone to the Bonhoeffer home and asked questions about the Christian faith, but he was an atheist, so persuaded that God does not exist that he forbade the mention of the word God or a Bible from crossing the threshold of the house my dad grew up in. My father um, grew up in that context, didn't have any religious faith, went on himself to become an academic, met my mother. They uh, lived in different places around the world with different jobs at universities, lived in Canada, lived in America, lived in London and then moved to Sydney, Australia, where they had an amazing life. They had beautiful weather, unlike what we've experienced this week, right? They lived near the beach. My dad had a job he loved, and they had two quite fantastic children. (laughs) And one day, uh, my father said, a thought began to occur to him, and the thought was, when I get to 65 and I retire, and I look back on my life, at this point he was in his 30s, And I look back on my life and I ask the question, what has life been about? What is life for? Will this, will what I'm experiencing right now, will it be enough? And he said that question worried him. A couple of things happened. One thing happened was that a colleague who was a Christian, who worked at the university, invited my father to come at lunchtime and hear a presentation about the Christian faith. And my dad said there was, it was just so, so bizarre. He thought, 
this speaker who was talking about the resurrection of Jesus and evidence for the Christian faith, my dad thought, this guy is making a category mistake. He's putting two things in a sentence that don't belong together. He's putting truth and evidence and reality in the same sentence as God. God is about superstition. It's about family tradition. It's maybe about wish fulfillment. It's not about truth or reality. Then a few weeks after that, he was at home marking some papers in his study. My mother was asleep in their room. My sister and I were asleep. And he had an extraordinary vision, a flashback of his whole life. And as his life replayed before him, he saw the reaction to his life on the face of Jesus. I'd say to him later, how do you know it was Jesus, Dad? He said, I don't know. I just know it was Jesus. And he understood as this vision unfolded that Jesus Christ was offering him forgiveness and connection with God. And so um, as, as this vision continued, at the end of it, he saw Christ on the cross and he realized he was being offered a chance of new life. So he knelt down in his study, and as he knelt, he thought, I don't know how to pray. I don't have words. So he said to Jesus, I don't have words to pray. Give me the words. And these are the words that came out of his mouth. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Anyone here read Mark's gospel? That's how my dad became a Christian. He went up and woke my mother up and said, Jane, the most amazing thing has happened. I've become a Christian. She thought, oh no. This is awful. I don't like this at all. So my dad tried to convert my mum. That's a whole nother story. But he also said to her, Jane, I, I really think I'd like to meet other people who are Christians. Where might that happen? And they did think for a long time before he said, maybe church. <laughs> and she said, she thought to herself, I know my husband is intelligent. I know how to cure him of Christianity. So she said, okay, I will only come to church with you if it's Anglican. Thinking once he's experienced that, he'll be cured for life. He'll be absolutely fine just so happened where they lived in Sydney diocese that the Anglican church was absolutely Bible believing and the first sermon my mother ever heard and my father ever heard was from the book of Romans actually from chapter one where the judgment of God is described and my dad sat weeping as he realized what he'd been forgiven from and my mother sat there absolutely furious how dare anyone say, not just there's a God, but that I might be accountable to that God. It took her six months before, praise God, she became a Christian too. How did you become a Christian? Today, in this scripture that we're looking at, the theme is the ridge of freedom. The ridge of freedom. And in our scripture, from Romans 6, verse 1, we're not going to read the whole thing through to 7, verse 25, Paul shows us how the gospel enables us to live a new life and that the gospel gives us transformational and true freedom. 
Let's just read a few verses. What shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How could we live in it any longer? Well, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now, um, in the section that we're looking at today that goes on to Romans chapter 7, So it begins with talking about this amazing freedom, the new life that the gospel brings in the life of a believer. But it also says some really difficult things like verse um, 19 of chapter 7. I I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. What a wretched man am I. So in this text together, we're going to explore the true freedom that is ours as followers of Jesus Christ and the new life that he begins, as well as the challenge of living that out and some of the frustration of feeling and knowing that we often do what we don't want to do. A celebration of new life that the gospel gives, but reality about the setbacks of living in this difficult and fallen world. I have three children, and uh, my first experience of giving birth was giving birth to twins. Thank you, Lord. In fact, when we first went and and had the first scan in hospital, and the sonographer says, there's another heartbeat. My husband, who's an amazing evangelist and leader, leapt up and shouted, praise the Lord. And the sonographer said, that is not usually the response we get. So when my, um, when my twins were a bit younger, um, they were, and they're 18 now, so this is a really long time ago, they were obsessed with um, a certain train called Thomas the Tank Engine. I don't know if any of you have sons and you lived in a particular era, but they were absolutely obsessed. And we were given by some thoughtful slash not so thoughtful friend of the family one version of the train called James, which was a red one, but it had a battery in it so it could go on its own around the track. And my two boys fought so much about who would get to switch it on so that it could go around the track. And I remember on one occasion sitting them down and saying, listen, you know, Jesus wants us to share. And if, you know, if we've got Jesus in our heart, then we could say to the person we love, you have James first. And I tried to do this whole sort of really spiritual, manipulative parental talk, at which point one of the boys said to the other, okay, but you be Jesus, and grab the train. The transformation that the living God brings as he intervenes in our lives is a true reality in my family history. I've seen it in the life of my father, my mother, and all the subsequent um, interventions of God. But the honesty of the child, you be Jesus, both are the lived experience of the Christian. And they're both here in Romans Change and freedom are works of grace. But the following of the Christian life is like walking through this ridge on a mountain range where 
on one side, we see the frustration and setbacks that come, as well as on the other side, looking into the valley of the breakthrough. That's the ridge of freedom. So I think we can begin this study together of God's word, deeply reassured that the Christian life is not about deluding ourselves and it's not about fantasy and it's not about pretense that we've got it all together or that we're these perfectly holy people. We can begin deeply reassured of the love and grace and power of God as well as the connection of the scriptures with the felt realities of the challenges of the Christian life. So how does Paul do that? We've got two headings together this morning. Firstly, know it. And that is Romans 6, 1 to 23. Secondly, live it. Romans 7, 1 to 25. So let's explore together. Firstly, know it. Now, up to this point in Romans, Paul has laid bare the valley of sin in chapters 1 and 2. He's guided us through the crux of salvation in chapter 3. We've followed the footsteps of Abraham in chapter 4, and we've been brought to a beautiful viewpoint of the love of God in history, the cross, and our present felt reality in chapter 5. And the obvious question, if you've been following the narrative that Paul has taken us through from chapters 1 to 5 of Romans, is this. If salvation is sorted, regardless of my sin... Does it really that matter that much if I go on sinning? If grace is so amazing as chapter 5 tells us, does that logically mean my sin doesn't really matter that much? And chapter 6 opens with exactly that question. Chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? So Paul now spends two whole chapters exploring this dilemma. And this is essentially what he suggests. He suggests that freedom works like this. Firstly, we need to know who we are theologically, know it, so that secondly, we can live it out practically, live it. In other words, Paul seems to really deeply believe that knowing is connected to doing and acting. It was the philosopher Paul Weaver writing in 1948 who famously coined the phrase, ideas have consequences. In other words, what we believe deep down about reality will be reflected on how we live in this world. What we believe at the deepest level, consciously and subconsciously, will shape our behavior. Now, on one level, what Paul is talking about is about control and specifically the coercive control and power of sin. And one of the key things about resisting or shaking off control is to be able to see it, to know it. To come into freedom isn't possible if we don't understand and see that we're under control. If you're living in a coercive relationship, you can't just hope for the best. Step one in freedom is your eyes being open to the truth 
of reality. So freedom, Paul is arguing, in the Christian life is real. And it's really important that we actually personally and individually know it. Now, for what it looks like to know it, Paul invokes two images. And it's really interesting to me that he does this. He doesn't just leave this at the level of a theological idea. It's not just like a sentence you've got to learn or accept to be true. He uses two visual images which help us live into knowing it. Both images are visceral and both are embodied. They're both physical images. And that is because sin is more than an idea. Sin and the power of sin operate at a coercive and controlling level in our bodies as well as just in our thoughts. So in chapters 6 to 8 of Romans, the theme of the Exodus, that is when in the Old Testament, the children of Israel who've been enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh's rule, the Exodus describes their movement out of Egypt and out of slavery and into deliverance as the people of God. They, they leave Egypt from their slave masters and they're trapped initially by the Red Sea and then God parts the Red Sea and they're delivered from Pharaoh's chasing army. And in that moment, they experience the deliverance and grace of God. But the theme of the Exodus is that they then spend 40 years in the wilderness. God brings them out of slavery to the Egyptians in a moment. But it takes 40 years to get slavery out of them, to get Egypt out of them. To know it, to know this freedom, is, is described as knowing freedom from slavery. Now, for most of us, the experience of slavery will be something a bit remote. You know that picture we've had of the sort of Roman thing? I don't know how often you guys think about the Roman Empire. Let's not do that whole thing. But, um, you know, perhaps we sort of think about slavery as something very remote. For others of us, it may be very live in the lived experiences of our families, historically or even in the present day. A few years ago, my husband and I received a call from an anti-human trafficking organization that we were supporting. A police raid had broken up a human trafficking ring, resulting in about 200 enslaved men being set free. They had been held as agricultural workers and they'd been kept in unspeakable conditions here in Britain. And while the prosecuting legal team prepared for trial, a vital witness needed shelter. There were potentially 200 witnesses to this crime, but it seems that all but one had been silenced with intimidation, threats to harm their family, or even murder. This one surviving witness remained and was needed, but there was a time period before the trial was going to happen, could he stay with us to protect him in the run-up to the trial? What a privilege to help in that very small way. He did testify in the end, and the traffickers were convicted. 
This was a person who had been violently abused by a gang of eagle men, evil men. His compatriots had been brutalized and murdered, and he had been traumatized through the ordeal as well as then the ordeal of testifying. His very humanity had been challenged to the core. He was now free, but the reality of living that out took a long time to sink in. Now, the Romans to whom Paul originally wrote this letter were surrounded by slaves, and they knew there were only two ways to stop being a slave, to be freed by your master or to die. If we were slaves to sin, we would need to die in some way to that master. That is the image that Paul uses to describe the visual image of freedom in the Christian life. To know it so much as if you had been a slave and now you are free. And that would take some kind of death. The second image is related that he uses, the image of baptism, which is going down into water, physically in your body, being submerged in water as if dead in the grave, and then being lifted out to symbolize the freedom of Christ. And of course, new believers in the early church would then have got out of that baptism water and put on a white robe. So on their body, demonstrating that belief of freedom in Christ. So that's know it. All who are in Christ have this freedom, having died to sin. Then secondly, live it. We're not just going to go on sinning, according to Paul. Um, In Romans 7, Paul uses a metaphor to help unpick the logic of, you know, why if there's all this grace, wouldn't we just go on sinning? And he compares God's law to a husband that people were married to under the old covenant. The husband himself is not sinful. God's law is holy and righteous and good. But the law can't actually change us or transform us. The law can reveal sin, but it can't transform us. The law might be like a good husband who can point out what is wrong. Or a good husband who can lead in the right direction. But, but, that, but, that, um, but that husband or trying to work harder to please that husband will ultimately only lead us to despair. The law is like a spirit level. It can show us what is crooked, but it can't straighten us out. Romans 7 verses 18 to 21, I know the good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. In these um, theologically challenging verses, there's an implication that the freedom I've been talking about so far, the freedom that my dad experienced through salvation, isn't actually real because sin lives on in us. Now, theologians have suggested various possibilities as to how we reconcile this. Maybe Paul's talking about his pre-Christian days. Maybe Paul is impersonating a Jew who knows God's law and can't keep it. Maybe Paul is speaking to Christians who've allowed sin to reassert some control 
in our lives. However we understand these verses, the key is that Paul is saying the law is powerless to save us and that the Christian life is not going to be a bed of roses after receiving new life. We're called to bear fruit, but that is going to feel difficult and hard. So bearing fruit as a result of our freedom and liberation means following the ridge of freedom between moral liberalism, just carry on sinning, don't worry too much about it, or religious legalism, like Jewish believers might have thought we just need to try harder and obey the Ten Commandments a bit more, looking to the law to change us. Now in chapter 6, Paul gives us three clues about how to do this, how to live it. Firstly, he says, count yourselves dead to sin. Chapter 6, verse 12. I don't know how many people here have your own business or have ever reconciled accounts on zero. Has anyone done that or an equivalent platform? You have to count certain things as certain categories. And if you haven't counted something in the right category as, say, an expense, it then becomes taxable income. You need to count yourself in the right category, says Paul. Have you counted yourself as dead to sin? The second clue, he says, is do not offer any part of yourself to sin and do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Our bodies are created good, but they've been corrupted by the fall and our flesh, our socks, our body doesn't yet completely reflect Christ's risen life. So spiritually, we're united with Christ, we're freed from sin, but we're still physically, mentally, and emotionally in a human body, prone to temptation, lies, and disordered desire. But as Christians, we can resist, and we don't need to offer up any part of our body on a plate to sin. And then lastly, thirdly, offer yourselves to God to serve in the new way of the Spirit. Offering our lives and bodies to God in devotion and worship is a beautiful and adventurous way to live. A little while ago, um, I was speaking in a country um, quite far away in Asia, and it's not a predominantly Muslim country, but I'd been asked to give a talk, an evangelistic talk on the Sunday morning. And um, about a few seconds before I was, uh, the service was about to start, the pastor said to me, listen, Amy, we have maybe a visiting dignitary coming. If he comes, don't change your message. I said, well, um, who is it? He said, don't worry about who it is. Just if he comes, don't change your message. I said, well, I am worried now. <laughs> and so he said, well, listen, he's the grand imam of this particular country, and he leads um, one of the top ten in terms of numbers mosques in the world but don't change your message. I thought, now I'm really worried. Sure enough, um, a few moments into the service, in comes a man in white flowing robes and his entourage. When I asked him after the service, why are you here? Can I ask you, why are you here? I'd had the opportunity to preach Christ. He said, a few months ago, my wife was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And the Christians in my country are persecuted. But when they heard what was happening to my wife, they asked if they could come and pray for her in Jesus' name. And he said, we were so desperate that we said yes. So they came and prayed for her 
and Jesus healed my wife. I said, wow, that's amazing. He said, yeah, but I didn't really after that know what to make of that. A few weeks after that, he said, I was on an airplane and a member of this church came and sat in the seat next to me. A member of that church was there. He was a businessman, did a lot of business travel and he'd made a commitment, offer yourselves. Offer yourselves to God to serve in the new way of the Spirit. And his commitment was, whenever I travel for work, I'm going to share Jesus with the person I'm sitting next to. As he got on the plane and saw he was in the seat next to him, he thought, maybe not this week. (laughs) But he was prompted by the Spirit to share the message of new life with this man. When the story about this man's wife came out, this businessman said, listen, next time you travel to any conference, go anywhere, I will pay to reroute your ticket through my city on a Sunday morning. I want you to come and hear the word of God preached so you can encounter Jesus. Offer yourselves. Offer yourselves to God. Serve in the new way of the Spirit. Know it. Know the freedom that is real and live it. Walk the ridge of freedom, not unrealistically thinking nothing's ever going to be hard, but offering yourselves to God, not offering yourselves up to sin and counting yourselves as dead to sin. Amen. Let's stand. I'd love to pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of the freedom that is ours as sons and daughters of the King. And we thank you for the help you give us in following you as we live out that grace in this world. We pray that you would help us, that you would strengthen us, your people, in these days. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the C3 Podcast. This message has spoken to you today in some way. We would love to know. Reach out to us at hello at the C3.uk. And if you want to extend the reach of what we do here, why not consider giving by going to thec3.uk forward slash giving. And as always, subscribe to our channel and share this episode with a friend. We hope to see you soon.